I have a lot of friends here today, and I've met some of you, and I look forward to seeing you after this talk. I was thinking uh, about the time that we're in now with uh, the 50th anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery March, the, what many people say was the second American Revolution where millions of citizens got the right to vote, and what an what a, what a interesting time in history. And I was also thinking about, you know, how did I grow up, who grew up on a small cotton farm in, in rural Alabama who only went to law school to make some money to buy some cotton land so I could farm, how did I end up standing in front of you talking about some of these issues of the day? It's been because I've had a lot of people who've helped me along the way. And I, I grew up in a little cotton farming community outside of Montgomery, and, and I think one of my original mentors was the fifth and sixth grade teacher I had in that small country school. She, a uh, small school, about like, I guess, 75 kids were in the school before they finally closed it. And I think they closed it to get rid of Mrs. Virabelle Johnson. <laughs> she taught my dad, and she taught me, and she taught two of my sons at that school. And she uh, 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 wanted us to be, grow up to be good citizens. And the reason I call her a mentor is because there's two things that she said that we should not do if we were going to be good people. And one was, and by the way, she was a Sunday school teacher in that Baptist church I went to, and you couldn't tell whether you, you know, in classroom with Bible verses on the wall or in uh, school, in church, either one, because she didn't make any distinction then. <laughs> and she said that we couldn't, we shouldn't smoke cigarettes. And we shouldn't drink alcoholic beverages. And I did great on the first one. <laughs> they got some wine over there. And she, she, nobody in America would smoke if you'd have had Ms. Johnson for a teacher. There'd be no tobacco litigation. Because we had to say a little rhyme that I, I was sitting there thinking about it. And I remember it to this day. We had to say that thing at least twice a week. We had to say that tobacco is a filthy weed and from the devil does proceed. <laughs> it picks your pockets and burns your clothes and makes a smokestack of your nose. Now, on his drinking, she was much more serious. She had a button about this big around. I know she got it in that prohibition battle, the Constitutional Amendment, because I'm sure she led the troops in Montgomery County on the vote. And on his button, it said, lips that touch wine shall not touch mine. <laughs> and she died an old maid. But one day, I'm the lawyer-to-be, and 12 years old, 1948, and I'm in the class there, and, and, she, and she was talking, and I, I saw a contradiction in what she was saying. And I said, but, but Ms. Johnson, you told us last week that Jesus, in one of his miracles, turned water into wine. She said, yes, Morris Dees, but we'd have thought a whole lot more of Jesus if he hadn't have done that. <laughs> The reason I call her mentors because she'd take us out in front of that little school and with the other children and 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 we would raise the flag on the flagpole and we'd all put our hands on our hearts and we'd say the Pledge of Allegiance. And I remember the words that stuck with me from that pledge, words that she repeated in the classroom to us, one nation with liberty and justice for all. And it wasn't much that this lady could do in the 1940s and 
about segregation, but she told us that she didn't feel like the colored people, as she called them, were, were treated fairly. And that kind of meant a lot to me because I've worked in the cotton fields and picking cotton and working with, with blacks in our area, and I know they weren't being treated fairly. But it took, before I became a lawyer, it took another one of our citizens, Rosa Parks, who refused to give up her seat on the bus for her right of dignity and fair treatment. And it took the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King to begin and lead a great movement. A man who many of his contemporaries did not agree with because they had little vision. And a man that politicians opposed even in Washington and other places because they had little backbone. And finally he faced a terrorist with no conscience. And when Dr. King was making a speech in 1963, the Poor Persons March on Washington, he said that there are lonely islands of poverty and injustice in this great nation of opportunity. And now as we celebrate African History Month and the 50th anniversary of the voting rights, we find out that there are still those in this nation who face poverty and injustice. And if Dr. King was here today with us, he would probably caution us that the American Civil Rights Movement, whose bookends were Brown versus Board of Education and his death, actually preceded Brown versus Board and has followed, and that the march for justice continues. And that's what I wanted to talk to you law students who came today and these in this community is the role that we have to play in this continuing march for justice because each of you have a front row seat. And some of you won't just sit down, but you'll get up and make things happen. You know, there are a lot of issues that we're dealing with today and I just spoke to a class and one of the questions from one of the students here was, well, what's the Southern Poverty Law Center doing today? We are doing more than fighting hate groups. We pretty well stamped out some of the major ones. But some of the issues facing us today that you know so well are issues like immigration and how are we going to deal with the 8, 10, or who knows how many million of undocumented people in this country who are making things happen, who are doing work that needs to be done, and who are citizens who are paying taxes and who are contributing to our community. We've got a big issue with uh, dealing with the LBGT community. We've seen a shift, a land shift, a major shift in acceptance of same-sex marriage in this country, and the Supreme Court has got that issue before them. But those are issues that we're dealing with, especially across the South, where there's so much bias and prejudice, and in other areas of the country, in some of the, some of the red states. And there are issues of mass incarceration of our prisons. We see people who are locked away and uh, probably our states and counties and cities could spend their money better for other kind of supervision, but lock them away, take away their right to vote, and give them horrible, horrible medical care. Some of the things that we're working on, but these are frontline issues. There are other issues dealing with the right for medical care for our citizens. We see uh, uh, those in this country who don't believe that people that aren't like them 
should necessarily have benefits that they perceive as being their entitlement. And so they're fighting the uh, uh, public health care program that we have today. There's so many other issues, issues of economic disparity. Uh, we've seen a, a, a high increase in the income level of the top quartile of our population and a stagnation of the rest of the population. And if the minimum wage today was kept up with inflation, since I was in college, it'd be over $15 an hour. And we see that being fought. But I think, I think the real problem facing our country today is fear of a changing America. I think that's the driving thing behind all the issues that are the confrontational issues that we see in Congress and we see on the national level and also on the state level around the nation. The issue that's driving the Koch brothers to spend a billion dollars to make sure that the Democrats don't elect the next president. In 1948, when I confronted my teacher, 12% uh, of the American population were people of color. Today, it's 37%. And demographers tell us that by 2040 to 2040 to 2045, that the people of color in this country will be in a majority. And that is frightening those people in this country today hold political power and especially economic power. It's really frightening to them. There, we see it in the increase in certain kinds of hate groups, especially on the internet, the virtual hate group. Uh, the cases that Mary mentioned that we tried to put the Klan out of business for uh, some of the things that they did. I've stood up in front of juries and not trying to just get the little guys who did the stuff, but to prove that the organization motivated them to do it. I've taken their literature and I've read every word of it from the neo-Nazi group in Idaho where we got a judgment for beating up people to the white Aryan resistance in Oregon to burning black churches in South Carolina. And I've read their literature and uh, I'll have to tell you, today that same material is mainstreamed. And I won't name the network that says it, but it starts with an F and ends with an X. <laughs> and it's amazing, this kind of stuff that they put on. Some kind of downing our country, downing our country, as they drive on a interstate highway to get to the station to do their broadcasting, and they're so glad that their mama's got Medicare, so they won't have to be spending money on her, but they're downing our country. And it all deals with a fear of a changing America. You know, I, when I grew up on that farm there, I didn't know what diversity was all about. There were the blacks that worked in the cotton fields and the whites that owned the land. Fortunately, my folks didn't own but a small piece of land, so we had to rent land from other white folks, and I got out there in the field and picked cotton alongside blacks because I wanted to make the money. And so I didn't understand, though, what role diversity plays in this country until I had an opportunity to represent some immigrants. After the Vietnam War, approximately 500,000 
Vietnamese were brought to this nation, had fought on the opposite side and fought for us, the side that we were in favor of there in Vietnam. And had they stayed behind, they probably would have been jailed, imprisoned, or who knows what. And so the Catholic Relief Services and other organizations brought those people here to this country and settled them all over America, many in Virginia. And about 50,000 of them were settled in the Galveston Bay, Houston, Texas area because it was very similar to Vietnam. They had the warm waters of the Gulf and, and other things. And, and then when these people got here in, Viet, in the Houston area, they really worked hard, very successful, coming with the clothes on their backs. But as immigrants have done before, were so successful. They took over all kinds of businesses and started new businesses, car washes, uh, laundromats, fruit stands, and all, so many things. And a small number of them, about 50, decided that they wanted to go into the shrimping and the fishing business, like they'd done in the warm waters around Saigon Harbor and other places. And so they didn't have money to buy the two and three hundred thousand dollar trawlers that the American fishermen had, and there were about two, three hundred plying the waters around Galveston, Houston area. So they bought old broken down boats, boats that had been put aside, and they bought them for three, five, ten thousand dollars. Worked hard, fixed these boats up, and went out to fish. And they were successful at it. They got up early and came in late, and there's no other way to put it, but the American fishermen became jealous. Their ways were different, the language was different, and they were accused of breaking the laws they really weren't breaking. And so the American Fishermen Association in that area with some four or five hundred strong operation went to the Texas legislature and said, pass a law not allowing these immigrants to have fishing licenses. These are American waters, and they said they were American fish. I don't know how they figured that one out. <laughs> but so Texas legislature, though, in its wisdom said, these are our friends. We've invited these people here. We're not going to pass this law. We're a free enterprise nation. Well, that didn't sit well with a small group of the American fishermen. And they turned to the, actually the world's oldest continuing terrorist group, the Ku Klux Klan. In this case, it was the Texas Knights of the Ku Klux Klan that had a pretty virulent leader, very, very charismatic speaker. And they set about to frighten these Vietnamese fishermen so that they wouldn't go out to fish on opening shrimping day in April. They burned several Vietnamese fishing boats, and it's hard to catch them, did it at night, but I'm surely the Vietnamese weren't burning their own boats. And they finally burned a, about a 50-foot cross soaked with diesel fuel down at Kemer, Texas, where Clear Creek Channel comes out, and the boats come out into the open waters to go fishing. Well, that frightened the Vietnamese fishermen, and they knew about the Khmer Rouge and the terrorists, so they, they decided they were going to sell their boats and, and get out of the fishing business. Well, fortunately, somebody, a lawyer down there that was helping them in real estate matters, contacted us, and I went down with a, another lawyer at the center, and, and I remember walking up and down the dock of, in Kemer, Texas, where the boats were tied up there, and New in Van Nam, the leader of the Vietnamese fishing group was with me. And I said, you know, you don't want to sell your boats. We, we go to court and we'll get an injunction in joining these people from interfering with y'all's rights. And if they violate their law, they'll go to prison for criminal contempt of court. And then I sat and looked at those boats. I stood there and 
the, these little boats, you've seen many of them, they, they had little glass wheelhouses, out-of-date boats, and in the window of every one was a sign that said, for sale. A sign you could buy at the hardware store. Well, we began to work quickly because shrimping season was two weeks away. And uh, we found some, some good evidence. That was some American fishermen who did not like what they had seen either. They'd gotten to know these people. They'd been in their homes. They knew they were good people, hard working, good family people. And so I had several willing to testify that the Klan had come to them and said, we'll burn your dock if you let the Vietnamese park their boats at your dock. Great testimony, plus a lot of other stuff we got, help from the FBI and the ATF, and great testimony. Well, we was ready to go to court getting this emergency injunction. On Sunday, about noon, I got a call from New in Van Nam. He said, Mr. Dees, drop the lawsuit. I said, oh, man, no. What's going on here? He said, if I got to drop the lawsuit, I got to go call that judge right now and tell him it's over. He said, well, we've been contacted by the leaders of the other Vietnamese businesses, and they say that let Klan have the fishing. We don't want them coming after our other businesses. I said, you know, man, it ain't work that way. If you cut and run, they're going to come after all of your businesses. So I said, do you think you could give me an opportunity to speak to the Vietnamese leaders in this community and the fishermen tonight? Well, they got them all together. And I was in a small Catholic church with a priest there to interpret. And I looked at those people sitting out there, and I could see fear. Many were dressed in the clothes they'd come to this country in, humble, hardworking people. And I said, you know, folks, America is a nation of laws, laws that protect the minority from the majority when the majority is breaking the law. Don't drop your lawsuit. Let me tell you folks about another time, uh, another person, a person you might not even know, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. His people, African-American people, had their rights violated. Their churches were bombed and burned. Their people were shot as they sought to get their rights. And had they not used our court system, they wouldn't have gotten their rights as soon as they did. Don't drop your lawsuit. I left the room and went back to the hotel with other lawyers and waited. And I got a call around 11 o'clock. It must have been a pretty contentious discussion. And Mr. Van Am said, continue the case. And we went to court. For a whole week, we put on evidence. And the judge issued a very powerful, strong injunction enjoining a large number of American fishermen and clan leaders not to interfere with the Vietnamese fishermen's rights under penalty of criminal contempt. Made the Vietnamese very happy. And I had an opportunity to, they invited me at least, to come down to the blessing of the fleet. I got down there at Kimber, Texas, to the dock where the boats come out into the channel, out Clear Creek Channel. It was about 5 in the morning. This fog was hanging heavy over the bay. The sun hadn't come up. And there was a Catholic priest there to bless the boats and about 50 or 75 family members and children and all in this ceremony that fishermen do. Didn't hear any boats or see any boats until finally the fog, out through the fog, popped a boat that came by the reviewing stand and the priest blessed that boat and another, another, until about 15 boats had gone out into the open waters and the sun began to burn through the fog. 
And as I looked to my right and my left, I could see the sun glistening off the badges of the United States Marshal that had been sent there, the police department, a force for the court system, to ensure this order was carried out. And as I looked around at the faces of, of the Vietnamese immigrants standing on that dock, I could see pride in their faces as they found a place at America's table. Not just finding a place at America's table, but building that table for the benefit, so to speak, of the rest of this nation, like immigrants have done for centuries in this country. And I'd like to tell you, I not only felt proud to be their lawyer, but I felt proud to see the majesty of our justice system at work. As I think about this issue of immigrants we have in our country today, I want somebody to take those people up in Washington who are, you know, don't want a comprehensive immigration bill and just shake them a little bit. I can say, okay, you Irish guys, and my people came from Ireland over here. They didn't even consider us white folks. They didn't. They, they said, we didn't speak, we spoke some Gaelic thing, you know, that didn't mean English. And, you know, they said, uh, they, they lynched them and beat them up in New York and Philadelphia and Chicago, saying these are American jobs. That kind of sounds familiar. Until finally we kind of got in with everybody else. And then the Jews that came to this country in the early 1900s and 1910 and 15, and finally did so well from Eastern Europe and and they filled this school and Harvard and Princeton and Yale with too many of their students to suit everybody, so they ended up with a quota. Ain't be having that, you know. Well, they got that problem solved. And, and then, you know, the Chinese, they built the railroads. They cut through the Granite Sierra Nevada Mountains. And, when the railroad was connected, they said, Congress said, well, you can't be a citizen. You can just go group after group, African-Americans who came to this country and slave ships mostly and not freedom ships and made great contributions and now we have a president from that group. And so I have no fear, I have no fear of this changing America. But it is frightening those people in our country who feel like that the things that this country has, its economic wealth and assets, should not be shared with people who are different than they are. It's what it really boils down to. We should have a universal health care system like England and other countries, but now we're piecemealing it all over the place, and it's such a messed up thing simply because of a fear of a changing America. And all the issues that end up deciding what happens in our country basically are decided in our courts, and that's why I wanted to talk to the students here today, because you're going to be... Uh, involved in this and have a front row seat in this whole thing. Obama's uh, immigration bill is challenged by, they pick some judge down in Brownsville, Texas. They probably figured he's the right one to get the case in front of and he enjoying the whole thing. And then there's U.S. Supreme Court's going to decide whether the uh, Obamacare program is extended to some states. Every, every issue that's, that has dealt with this country, all the way from drawing up our Constitution and our Bill of Rights and and all these things were done by lawyers. Lawyers are, are a wonderful group of people, profession, that has a lot to say and do about this country. Most of our presidents have been lawyers. And it, it's, 
an awesome responsibility. But there's something else that's got to happen in America because we're a nation of immigrants. But we're also a nation of, uh, we still have kind of a frontier spirit in this country. And we uh, have, there are a lot of things that have happened in our country that, that there are a lot of open wounds. In Montgomery, Alabama, we're going to celebrate in a big way the 50th anniversary of the crossing of the bridge at Selma where our governor decided to send his state troopers over there and beat the people when they crossed the bridge. And that photographic display was what galvanized Congress and caused President Lyndon Johnson to push hard to get a Voting Rights Act passed. But there are people in our community now who say, well, why are we celebrating this thing? We're just opening old wounds. It's going to make people not like each other. There's been no resolution. There's been no resolution in so many other things in our country. But South Africa... Uh, with Nelson Mandela locked up for so long, decided that, that they would have reconciliation and forgiveness. That's something America has not come to terms with, with all the various groups that we treated so badly over the years. And I had a case that, that I think illustrated, illustrated in a, a powerful way this whole idea a reconciliation and forgiveness. It was the case that I think that caused us to start the tolerance education program at the Southern Poverty Law Center. We represented a black woman who lost her only son to a Klansman's noose. It wasn't just any Klan group. It was a Klan group, the United Klans of America, who bombed that church in Birmingham that killed those four little Sunday school girls. Their members shot violently Uzo on the march from Selma to Montgomery. It did so many other awful things. Well, in the early 1980s, this group was having a revival. Our country was turning more to the right. Under President Carter, we'd had double-digit inflation, interest rates, and other things. And our country was getting in the grips of a kind of a politically right-leaning uh, right, uh, group and the Klan, on the other hand, was also having a rebirth because they were the, kind of the underbelly of this conservative movement in America. And this group, the United Klans of America, at that time had a revival. They had chapters in 30 states. They had a brand new building and 10,000 square foot building with land and money in the bank. And that was a trial going on in Mobile, Alabama that caught their attention. A black man was on trial for killing a white police officer. And what caught the Klan's attention was that the jury was made up of 10 African Americans and two whites. The jury was properly pulled from the community and that's how it turned out. Well, the Klan thought that this jury was going to turn this black man loose and so they had came up with a plan directed from the national office where he, they got proof of this plan, that if that black guy gets off for killing this white man, they were going to do something to send a message to black people that if they serve on juries that affect the lives of white people, they better be careful. And this message is going to be the killing and lynching of a black person, any black person. So they picked two young Klansmen, 
Henry Hayes and James Knowles. James was 17, Henry was 24. And they gave them a gun and a noose and a car, and they began to watch the news. And on Friday night, the jury verdict came back with a, with a uh, deadlock jury. It wasn't along racial lines. It turned out, well, they consider that a defeat. And so these, young two, these two young clansmen with their weapons and their car went around for, looking for this black person that they were going to kill. And finally, around midnight, they found Michael Donald, Mrs. Donald's only son. He had just left his job at the Mobile Press Register where he was stuffing newspapers to be thrown the next day. He was a student at Mobile Junior College. He was a leader in his church. He's a wonderful young man. And he was walking down the street, and they pulled up beside him and asked directions for a restaurant. And he uh, politely walked over and was telling them where the restaurant was. And they put the gun on him, and he didn't know it was a clan. They forced him into the car and drove him across the Bayou Bridge over into another county. And along the way, he said, look, I don't have any money. I take what little I got. But don't, don't harm me. My mother depends on me. Well, when they got him out of the car, he took off running. They chased him down and hit him in the head with a club, knocked him to the ground, put that noose around his neck. And one of the guys put his foot up against his face and pulled on that rope until there was little breath left in him. And then they took his body and hung him from a tree in a black neighborhood where he was found the next morning. They ended up several years later catching these two clansmen because the younger one had committed some other crime and he ratted on his buddy. And for his testifying against his buddy in a criminal case, he got a life sentence in the Federal Witness Protection Program. I went to that criminal trial as a lawyer for the Donald family because I'd been watching that Klan group. I remember that church bombing in Birmingham and I hadn't forgot what had happened and was looking for a way to put this bunch out of business. When I sat there at the trial, Ms. Donald didn't come. It's too painful for her after such a short time to be there. And I saw the young Klansman testify against his partner who was found guilty by a jury and given the death penalty, in fact, the first African-American that we know in history that, uh, first white person, I'm sorry, who got the death penalty for killing a black person. And after the trial, I, I contacted the Justice Department and got permission to talk to that young Klansman. And I interviewed him in his witness protection hideout for a while and put together a case against the United Klan. It was a precedent-setting legal theory to sue the organization for the acts of its members because you have to get around the First Amendment. But what we showed that they was actually encouraging violence. And so we ended up with a trial in Mobile, Alabama. And Ms. Donald came to that trial. And I sued the Klan, had a good lawyer. And <clears throat> I sued the individual Klansmen because I wanted the jury to see the whole cast of characters. They didn't have a lawyer, and I wasn't expecting to ever get any money out of them, but I wanted the jury to see them all. And at the trial, James Knowles got on the stand and testified what had happened. And I know that... Uh, Mrs. Donald couldn't have helped but have seen from that autopsy photograph of her son's face as I pass it over to the jury, those waffle boot prints in his face. And at the close of the trial, the Klan lawyer made his argument saying that they 
really weren't responsible for these renegades, that they weren't carrying out the Klan's duties, and they had the First Amendment right to do this. And I told the jury, I said, you know, we've proven through all kind of evidence that they, this Klan group was behind the beating of the Freedom Riders in Birmingham, the killing of Viola Liuzzo, the bombing of the church. And I said, I want you to render a verdict so that when they call out one day the names of those people who died and gave up their lives in a struggle for human rights and human dignity, to render a verdict so they'll call out the name of Michael Donald. I sat down and the judge began to tell the jury what the law was. And about then, this young Klansman stood up and we didn't know what he wanted. And he got the court's attention and he said, Your Honor, I would like to say something to the jury. I didn't know that I had that choice. So we said, fine, that's okay. We didn't want error in the record. And so he stood up there and now it was seven, eight years after this incident happened before we got to trial. And he said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, everything that Mr. Deej said is true. I was influenced by these Klan leaders and as a teenager, but now I'm locked away and I'll never be able to be with my family again. And he looked at that Ms. Donald who was sitting no further than this front row of the seats in front of that jury in that federal courthouse. And he started sobbing. I thought the judge was going to declare a recess so he could regain his composure. When he cleared his throat and looked at her sitting there, he said, Ms. Donald, can you forgive me for what I did to Michael? And she looked up at him there, and if I've tried a hundred more cases, I'd never be so moved or touched. She said, son, I've already forgiven you. There wasn't a dry eye in that courtroom. That old judge, I saw him brush back a tear. This dear woman who had lost one of the most precious things in her life understood that this man was a victim to a teenage victim of hatred and bias. And her attempt at reconciliation and forgiveness was a lesson that wasn't lost on us. We came back and set up the Tolerance Education Program and got Ma Lin to come and build the Civil Rights Memorial Center that lists the lives of the 40 people who died in Montgomery, Alabama. And it's, it's a lesson that, quite honestly, that this nation could take heed to as we are in a time of change in this nation, as we seek equal justice for all. We're going to be successful, I promise you, because this nation's moving forward and the democratic underpins of this country went out. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King had serious doubts about whether this nation would continue as a democracy, and, and why shouldn't he? 
We treated millions less than second class. And I heard him tell an old story, and he's told that story, I think, as a warning. It's a warning to us as a nation. It's a story that he said about 900 B.C., the Jews, the children of Israel, who had just been released as slaves from Egypt, wandered through the wilderness and finally, finally crossed that river Jordan and finally built the great city-state back then. And this was a very prosperous state, city, they call it, and it had high walls around it, as Dr. King explained. And they had a big gate that protected the people. And on the insides of this town, they had banking system, court system, education systems, just kind of like today. And in the center, they had a great marketplace. And people from far and wide outside of this town brought their products in to sell in that marketplace. And there was a farmer who arrived early in the morning with his wagon laden to find him a place, a good stall in the market to put his produce and goods out. And as he was waiting on those big gates to open, he saw things that bothered him. He saw able-bodied men and women reaching out begging for a few grains from his wagon. And upon inquiry, he learned that well, if you didn't have connections with the right people here, you didn't get a good job or a job at all to feed your family. And then he went into the marketplace and he put his goods out in the stall and he heard grumbling from some people walking by. And he heard them say that, well, you know, unless you're in with the people that control this place, sometimes you get arrested for stuff that other people don't get arrested for. And they had other complaints of unequal treatment based on who they were. And this bothered this farmer because he knew the, the, the slaves who set up this town, his former slaves, and he knew the promises of equality and justice that this whole thing was based upon. And so he asked for an audience with the leaders. And he was a man from outside, and he was a man of some means and reputation, and they gave him a chance to speak to, I guess you'd call it the Count the city council. You probably know who this farmer was. He was the biblical prophet Amos. And Amos stood up in front of these people in that ancient town and said, You know, folks, you got a good thing going here. But unless you're fair to all the people, you're not going to get to keep what you have and pass it down to future generations. It'll be taken away from you. And there won't be one stone left upon another of this great town. And as he stood there in front of those people, he spoke the words that Martin Luther King spoke before. Words that are emblazoned across the Civil Rights Memorial put there by Ma Lin. He said, don't be satisfied, people, till justice rolls down like waters <clears throat> and righteousness like a mighty stream. That lesson applies today as it applied in those ancient times. Dr. King warned us and did his part, but the rest is up to us. Human rights begin close to home, in our schools, in our workplaces, and in our communities. And that's where people look and seek equal treatment. And if they don't find it in those places in this nation, then I promise you, we'll look 
in vain for progress in a larger world. I know that, that when the legal history books are written, they'll probably be on a Kindle by then, that they're going to be the books about our greatest legal generation in this nation. I have confidence. Thank you so much.